You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, there was this really interesting article in the BBC a couple of weeks ago, the, the BBC News Service, of course, by Tim Hartford, and it's titled, Why Didn't Electricity Immediately Change Manufacturing? And when I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of the parallels to machine learning and artificial intelligence adoptions. I, I know you read it. What did you think? I love historical analogies. People may have noticed that. Uh, <laughs> although I'm not very good at dates. And uh, what I loved about Tim's article was that it was sort of looking back in context at a time where I guess Faraday is is famous for these demonstrations to the Royal Society of what electricity could do. And then well, I don't recall the dates, but then you've got you know, the inventor of the light bulb, Thomas Swan. I think it's Thomas. And then I think people in America, there's this bloke Edison that people think was involved. But anyway, it's it's contemporaneous. (laughs) You know, you've got electric light, you have the invention of the electric motor and all these sort of components. And it's quite clear you can do interesting things. And what the article was really about is why it took so long to go from those, those late 19th century innovations to what was functioning ecosystems around electricity. So manufacturing plants that weren't sort of steam powered. And, you know, sensibly, it looks easy. You just simply take out the steam engine, you put an electric motor. But I guess Tim's point was that to take the real advantage of electricity, it wasn't sort of just a cost saving or whatever. It was that you could, instead of having your large engine at the center of the factory and then using systems of pulleys and wheels to distribute this power to the machines, which might be looms in sort of industrial Britain or whatever, you needed to develop small electric motors that were close to the machine, like a modern lathe or a modern weaving machine were integrated with the machine and distribute the electricity through cables. But the technology wasn't there for these small engines, these small motors. It was there for these big motors. And I mean, that's my simplistic distillation. I think he's doing a series and I think it's on the World Service and I haven't listened to it, but this article caught my eye. It all looked very interesting. But I thought the parallels with machine learning were, were quite strong, perhaps not over the sort of 50-year time frames we're talking about. But for machine learning to be effective at the moment, it relies very often on a large centralized data repository, sort of like the big engines, these big neural networks. People are doing a lot of work to try and make them smaller and build these equivalents of these small motors, make them deployable where the intelligence is needed. And we're still, the big engines are working great. I mean, they're doing some amazing things. We're making great progress. But I I think unless we get these small, more data efficient models working as well, and also the expertise in how we deploy, I think we're going to hit similar problems. I mean, I think there's other sort of issues there like around the infrastructure. And for me, that infrastructure is the current for powering the electrical motors. And and here, a lot of it's about moving the data around to the right place and making the little engines efficient enough to get something out of that. So I thought that parallel was interesting. And it also made me think about, well, what do I think is the key components of a successful transfer of, say, an interesting scientific project to the real world? And I, I sort of came up, maybe other people have said something similar, I suspect. So but with a three-component model, number one, I think that something, you know, it's for it to be considered science that has to be technically innovative. And, you know, and that's not necessarily true for anything one might do in the world you don't have to be technically innovative to be interesting and successful in in a business sense but you know for us to be thinking about it as a scientific thing i get excited by things that are technically innovative so that's for me a component that i'd like to see there but perhaps isn't critical for success but the next thing you also have to do is you have to to be successful in the real world is you kind of have to solve a real business problem or what we might think of as a customer pain point you know you have to do something that people actually need 
and I think that this is sort of known. I'm not. I don't think I'm sort of saying anything particularly novel by talking about those two things. What's interesting, it's hard for people, and if we think about Edison in particular, I mean, he was someone who was, I'm not an expert on him, but he's probably a controversial character among certain people, but he's clearly someone who's technically innovative and inventive and also understands business needs. And then the third component that he also achieved is he did make things deployable in some sense. Now, not deployable in the sense that, like, say, the 1930s ecosystem for electricity indicates with electrical-powered factories, but he was someone who was capable of taking innovations from an idea to solving real-world problems and to deploying in the real world. Now, why do I say solving real world and deploying? Because deployability is separate from, you know, just because you've created something that should solve things, if you could get it out there, it's often hard to get it out there. And there can be a few different reasons for that. One on the deployability might be because there's an existing ecosystem for doing something. And I think that that's like these large factories already had this steam power, right? And they were already distributing power around the factory by systems of pulleys and shafts and pulleys to distribute the kinetic energy. And if you come in with your electrical engine, even if you've invented the small electrical motors, just to, just getting manufacturers to sort of change, upgrade their systems takes time. And the same thing is true that even if I've developed a cool, a better way of doing something with machine learning, if it's already being done by people out there in the world today, it's gonna take me a while to persuade people and to do all the politics and the communication to adopt it. So you're sort of almost better off to be in those domains where nothing exists, you know, so where you've developed something completely new, you've realized a new customer, you know, it's not, oh, people want clothes. People have wanted clothes for a long time. There's a lot of history to the industry of making clothes. You've discovered some new thing people want and there's no existing infrastructure. That's one of the reasons that Data Science Africa interests me so much is because actually I think it's easier to deploy your innovations. I mean, it's not easy to, but I think it's easier to deploy an innovation in healthcare in an ecosystem where there isn't great healthcare already than it is to go in and say, Catherine Heller, you're doing amazing work in healthcare, but she also then has to you know, normalize that with the existing system of clinicians. And whatever she offers has to be better than the state of the art in a very advanced country with, with very advanced medical care. So that third component of deployability is something people, I think, very often forget, or maybe they don't forget, maybe I'm imagining it. Look at both those projects you know, that Catherine talked about and getting solutions out first. And there's other people doing this, people like Suchisaria, Finale Doshi, you know, trying to take advanced machine learning, trying to deploy it on problems that we know are problems, like issues of better understanding of disease through data. There's whatever the business case, one doesn't like to say business in healthcare, but you know, it is the, or the customer pain point, literally pain point. But then the big obstacle is very often, for very sensible reasons, how do you get it out there and deploy it? And that's an enormous amount of work. And I think when we started these areas, we underestimate that. And I think with what you see in that article by Tim, which I'm sure we're going to link to from the sites, is the history of how long it can take to do these things. So there's a sort of, sometimes I get the impression that everyone thinks that all of machine learning and AI is going to resolve everything within the next couple of years. And it's clearly not. I mean, we saw that with the internet. The internet, everyone could see the possibilities of the internet, but we had this you know, large dot-com bubble 
where everyone had very high expectations sort of 15, 16 years ago, and those weren't fulfilled. And then there was a sort of big disappointment. They weren't fulfilled on the timescale people thought they would be fulfilled. They're fulfilled now. Everything everyone thought back then and more is being done now, but it's 16 years post the bubble burst or something like that, 17 years past that. And I just wonder if we'll see something similar in the world of ML and AI, not because the promise isn't there, not because the technology doesn't work, but this thing that Tim hit on, the deployability, the length of time it takes for people to understand how to use a technology and to use it in the best way and to be trained on it and to overcome existing infrastructures for it to be really effective. At the same time, it takes longer than people expect. Progress moves slower, but in another way, it moves a hell of a lot faster, like than I certainly expected looking 15 years ago. I mean, I don't know if that makes any sense, but historical contextualization, I think is very helpful in seeing these things. Yeah, definitely. And Tim makes an interesting observation that it took them basically 50 years to figure out what electricity was particularly good at doing, how it was yeah. better at doing the same things than perhaps a steam engine was. And if it took us only 16 years to figure out what the internet was particularly for that was better than any other modes of communication that we were using previously, that's like a huge shortening of that factor period and deployability. But do we even know that we know what the internet's for yet? No, we don't even know. Because actually, if you'd gone to 1900, then they would be saying, hey, we do telegraph, we do all these sort of things. Exactly. Maxwell's equations, radio, electromagnetic radiation. Yeah, we've got it, you know. And then in some sense, we're still part of that electrical revolution. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's beyond imagining sometimes. Some people do imagine it, but maybe I can't. <laughs> <laughs> If you'd like to read Tim Hartford's article, we'll link to it on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And you can listen to more of Tim's work on the program 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. It's part of a broadcast by the BBC World Service. He also writes for the Financial Times Undercover series. You can find links to all of those pieces on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on talking machines is about kernels. Yes, okay, kernel methods and Gaussian processes show great performance on small data sets. My understanding is that a primary reason neural networks, deep nets, etc., have gained so much more traction in industrial settings is that they are able to leverage the massive amounts of data that would be infeasible for any kind of kernel-based method. Is this an accurate understanding? Is there a reason to believe that if we could scale kernel methods up to work with millions of data points, they perform comparably to state-of-the-art deep learning methods? Can you grow a kernel method into a deep learning? Interesting question, and one that's very close to my heart, because I sort of do a lot of research that is contingent on that being true, that one would hope it's true, but I don't necessarily think it is. Let's take the first part of the question, which is, Gaussian processes and kernel methods work great on smaller data sets. I think that they work well, but if you actually go back and dig out Radford Neal code from the mid-1990s on hybrid Monte Carlo for Bayesian neural networks, my historic experience is that worked better. In fact, I think the reason it's not cited so much is it worked so well that no one ever could compare to it and get their paper published because it worked better than what they were doing. <laughs> that was certainly my experience as a naive PhD student who kept on comparing to it and having my methods beaten and having the reviewers go, but you're beaten by Bayesian hybrid Monte Carlo neural networks. No. 
I know. Yeah, that's uh, depressing. You know, so don't be too good. Don't ever produce something. <laughs> no one will ever cite you <laughs> if your oh, method's God. so good <laughs> that it beats everyone else because they can't, even if they wanted to, they can't get published. Depressing. What a terrible kiss of death to come up with something so good that no one ever cites it and then it's not used as much anymore because it was so good that people weren't kicking it around all the time. Yeah, fortunately, I think Radford did all right. <laughs> But sadly, the, the sort of quality of that method is perhaps not understood. I would urge, actually, people, there's a lot of resurgent interest in Bayesian neural networks today. So, and I'm talking one-layer neural networks, this was at the time. There was a sort of project at the time. Radford worked with Carl Rasmussen, and Carl was an early developer of Gaussian processes that were inspired by Radford. And by an observation from Radford, the single-layer neural network, as you took the number of hidden units to infinity, became a Gaussian process, which Chris Williams and Carl followed up on. And they built a project called Delve, which was a very early, ahead of its time, set up for trying to benchmark different algorithms. I uh, actually saw Radford speak about this, and I think I met Carl at the same summer school that I met my wife back in sort of 1997 in Cambridge, actually. Carl's thesis, which covered Delve and Gaussian processes, always was showing GPs performing almost as well as Bayesian neural networks with hybrid Monte Carlo. And that's actually what got me interested in them, that and other talks from David Mackay and Chris Williams and others. So it's certainly true that they sort of seem to work well on small data. I think it comes a little bit back. Larger data things get complicated because algorithmically they're harder to scale, as I think the questioner hinted at. Is it necessarily the case that you would get as performant as these sort of deep neural networks? Well, the really nice thing about the, the deep neural networks and so it's things like recurrent neural networks, LSTMs, is the amount of structure about your problem that you can include, which is sometimes harder to include in a kernel method or a covariance function because you're a little bit more restricted. I mean, with these neural networks, you know, the main thing is you just need to build differential functions and then it's sort of up to your imagination. So, you know, there's more restrictions on a kernel that you have to lead to some sort of positive definite object. Certainly in the kernel community, people typically don't like too many parameters inside the kernel because they tend to select those parameter values by cross-validation. So that's hard to do if you have very many parameters. Now, in the Gaussian process community, people shouldn't shy away from that. You can put very many parameters in the kernel. You can even put neural networks in your kernel. So, of course, you can make, you can actually just take a neural network, feed it into a Gaussian process or feed it into a kernel machine. And that would give you a new form of highly parameterized kernel. And you then optimize to your heart's content. But in the end, it just looks like a neural network again. So you have to understand why you're doing that when you're doing it. It's something that we're certainly doing. I certainly do. But you sort of need to know why you're doing it. One reason we're interested in doing it is for low data and model repurposing. I think Zubin Garamani has also published on that. It seems to me a very clear and sensible thing to do. That's one way of getting around these sort of things is you look for the strengths of the different methods and try and combine them where they can. I would love to think it's true that only Gaussian processes and kernel machines in our loose current alliance that we're having while the neural networks dominate that could solve these small data problems. I think that that's unlikely to be true. I think that the, the real appeal for those methods to me is their mathematical elegance. And what do I mean by that? 
I mean that the mathematical properties of the model are a lot simpler. There's some complex maths, certainly around the reproducing kernel Hilbert space, but you just can't do the equivalent maths for a neural network. So that has certain advantages. But, you know, back to our sort of model and algorithm thing that we were doing uh, the other week, one annoying aspect of that is that you can get a mathematically elegant model for both kernel machines and Gaussian processes. Algorithmically, you know, Gaussian processes are certainly very elegant because everything's linear algebra. That's another beauty of them. But then the scalability of those algorithms is, is subject to question. And when you start trying to make them scalable, things get a bit messier. And then that's something that you know, I've, I've dedicated a lot of research time to myself. And I think that that's also true for kernel machines. Very elegant algorithms, but they become less elegant as you try and scale them. And, and the wonderful thing about neural networks is it's this very heuristic, hacky-looking algorithm at first sight turns out to, as people discover as you dig deeper and to have all these nice properties about like avoiding local minima and I, I suspect it's self-regularizing I have a little and I think people have written about this and I think uh, Jennifer Chase with the statistical mechanics of the, the sort of thing that when she talked about that those papers look at I mean here's my intuition for it the, the neural networks people train will horribly overfit if you actually find their true optima if you find in the sort of high dimensional space of parameters the point at which is very best for fitting your training data you will horribly overfit and the reason you don't is these stochastic gradient descent algorithms struggle to find those optima and the, the reason i believe that's the case is i, I think of them intuition and i haven't got evidence but I, I think it's true is that they're very narrow-necked these optima what do i mean by narrow-necked and i don't even making any sense in terms of technical terms i mean that to get to those optima there's a narrow hole somewhere that you your algorithm has to find and go through now classical optimization algorithms are designed to find those things like lbgfs a conjugate gradient are designed to if they get close to those things to actually seek them out and find them using lots of clever techniques but a stochastic gradient descent method will not find them because it's kind of in my conception it's like walking around those landscapes it's like you're in this landscape and there's this very narrow well somewhere in the landscape and you will fall in the well if you are generally capable of searching that landscape but actually if you wear very big boots you know you've got no chance of falling down the well so these sort of step sizes you take uh, with the stochastic gradient descent means you're kind of clomping around randomly in these large boots and so you don't tend to find these narrow wells you tend to find these very broad valleys or it's almost like a depression i suspect and and those solutions so if you think about them from a Bayesian perspective, there's a lot more posterior mass. So a Bayesian perspective would say that you're more interested in a solution where as you change the solution a little bit, then it's likely that that would have more mass associated with it. That would be a better solution from a Bayesian perspective. And there's other motivations that I think Jennifer was probably hinting at and also the old sort of statistical learning theory literature will hint at that that's a good thing. You don't want to be in a pace where if you walk left or right, there's a sudden increase in the incline. And stochastic gradient descent, I think, I'm not an expert on it, and this is a loose in intuition, people might correct me, is, is doing very, very well because it will tend to find those large basins not the narrow wells. Now, I mean, where do we start? We started on these sort of how things happen in, in low data and so on and so forth. It's, if you had the good the hybrid Monte Carlo algorithms of Radford Neal and you would take them and you start deploying them on these deep neural networks for low data, if you prepared to put the effort into it, I suspect that would perform extremely well. And because you can tend to structure these things for particular problem domains, 
I suspect you're going to outperform just as in the days of hybrid Monte Carlo, Bayesian neural network, single layer, a classical Gaussian process. So yes and no, I guess is my answer. I mean, I kind of also think that, that approach is going to be hard. And, you know, the, the bet I guess I'm placing, which I'm not saying is, is necessarily going to pay off in my own research and that of the people I work with, is we're sort of like, well, that might be true. But as you err towards the sort of regularization that Radford was doing there in with hybrid Monte Carlo, doing that type of Bayesian inference, that the mathematical elegance of, say, the Gaussian process framework and a kernel machine person might argue similarly for kernel machines will will start to play to your advantage again and that you'll be able to do more creative things in that low data space than with the neural network and i suspect the truth will always lie in between you know we were talking about buffets and that's why you don't really want it's a classical explorer exploit trade-off i mean what people are doing on the buffet at the moment when they're going for that one cuisine of the deep neural networks is they're exploiting the fantastic ability of those algorithms to perform in certain domains. But, you know, there's a number of areas people are going with that that I'm skeptical will ever work. I might be wrong, of course, but diversity is the spice of life. So, you know, that, we encourage that. And diversity leads to exploration. So you have other people saying, well, hang on a minute. You know, if we'd suppressed the neural network people for years and required them to have formed some sort of conspiracy, that would have been a terrible thing. <laughs> So we should sustain all these points of view and remember all about these different methods because there may come a point where we need to recombine these things. And to be frank, I think that, you know, I, I know there was a little bit of a conspiracy, but there wasn't really a winter in that, you know, as soon as those methods outperformed the Gaussian process, kernel methods, graphical probabilistic graphical models methods, they immediately came to the fore. I mean, they were published and that was it. It just took serious work on the algorithmics by, you know, great teams deploying them on GPUs and making all sorts of algorithmic advances to getting that right and i think it's going to be the same thing that it will probably be a bit of a delay but i hope that you know that these methods will will come back together and just as radford pointed out in his phd thesis back in the mid-1990s you know a neural network uh, under certain conditions tends towards a gaussian process and so an elegant mathematical tool for understanding certain types of neural network is a gaussian process so not a clear-cut answer. I mean, I think there's absolutely some truth in the question, but I also think it's a little bit more complicated. Certainly when I do low data, I tend to reach for a Gaussian process. But, you know, I'm subjective. I'm, I'm not objective. So, you know, but I would encourage certainly anyone who's doing a low data regression problem and they need uncertainties, the, the, the Gaussian process should be the first thing they should reach for. But if you're going to do these things in practice, you want an understanding of a diversity of techniques and you want to be able to access all those tools. It's like, you know, a fine craftsman doesn't just take, well, the classic one is a hammer to everything, but let's not be classic, a screwdriver to everything. They, they actually have, you know, different types of chisel. And, and until we automate the whole thing and solve AI, which apparently is just around the corner, according to some people, we will need to be able to access all these different tools to get the most out of our data, uh, and particularly in low data circumstances. But, you know, in the large data circumstances, different sets of challenges, scaling, data access, bandwidth, all these sort of things speed speed of the resulting algorithm if you've got a question for talking machines email us at the talking machines at gmail.com or tweet us at tlkng mchns our guest this week on talking machines is professor peter donnelly he directs the welcome trust center for human genetics and is professor of statistical science at the university of oxford 
He's also chair of the Royal Society's Machine Learning Project in Public Response to Artificial Intelligence and Machine Learning. And we got a chance to sit down with him and talk to him about this report a while ago. But the first question that we asked him is how he got where he is. So I've, had an, I've always had an academic career. I started off doing mathematics and statistics, probability modeling. And my work became involved in modeling and then statistical questions related to genetics. Mm. And then over time, over the course of 10 or 15 or 20 years of my career, I actually got more and more interested in genetics. So I went from the stage of doing things which were interesting mathematically, sort of motivated by problems in science, to really, really wanting to answer the scientific questions. So these days, I work at the University of Oxford. I run a large human genetics research center, trying to understand a number of things about the relationship between our DNA and our cells. For example, which bits in our DNA code make one person more likely to get one disease, someone else more likely to get mm. another. And are you using ML or AI to investigate any of these questions in your own lab? Yes. A lot of what we do, and in, in particular my own group because of its background, is to develop analytical methods for making sense of the large data sets. So a typical study in human genetics these days would involve many tens of thousands of individuals, on each of whom we might measure their entire genome. So the three billion letters they inherit in their DNA from their mother, the three billion from their father. Or in some cases, we measure a subset of maybe a million of those mm. uh, carefully chosen. So tens of thousands of individuals with millions or billions of bits of genetic information measured on them. And then health outcomes, which could just be, did they get heart disease or did they not get heart disease? Or a much richer set of information than that. And the challenge is to try and find the patterns. Mm. So most of the methods that have been used successfully to date and that we and others have developed that have been widely used are a bit more statistical in flavor than machine learning. Genetic data has a particular rather complex correlation structure that we understand well because it arises from evolution. And most of the methods that have worked well have tried to model that approach. So you can think of Bayesian models and Bayesian statistical approaches. And it's been, you know, it's, it's a fantastic area of research. Genetics and genomics is going to change the way we do medicine. It'll hopefully change okay. the way we develop drugs. And it's been extraordinary to be a small part of that. Fantastic. And you're also the chair of the working group on machine learning for the Royal Society, which has been doing some work about public understanding of the work that goes on in this field. Yes, the Royal Society in Britain has a substantial policy arm, so a group that thinks about the interaction between science and society and things that might relate to policy. And they're undertaking a large piece of work on machine learning. What are the potential impacts of machine learning on society in the next five or 10 years? What do the public currently think of machine learning? What are their fears? Which things are they positive about? What are the issues that need to be thought about from a regulatory and governance point of view? Are there sector-specific things? So I've been fortunate to chair the, work, the Royal Society Working Group. It seems like a David and Goliath-sized challenge to try to understand how the public feels about machine learning. It's been really interesting, actually. And I think from the outset, the Royal Society felt it was essential to actually engage with the public to really understand what they knew about, what they understood, what they were worried about. And we've done that in a number of different ways. There are various events we've had to engage the public, to give them a chance to ask questions or to talk to machine learning experts. But we did a substantial piece of research with Ipsos Mori, part of which was a, a more formal questionnaire that they gave to well over a 1,000 people. And then there are a number of dialogues, so things that I think would have been called focus groups, where mm. over a weekend a group of members of the public come in, spend time, with the Ipsops Mori facilitators and some of us on the machine learning side so that over the period of time they can understand a bit more about machine learning and develop their thoughts about the things they're worried about or concerned about and the things they're positive about. So did you actually see attitudes change as the public gained more information? I feel like that's what any researcher hopes for, but it, it always seems like such a, a lofty goal. 
We did. The initial quantitative survey, for example, showed that if you ask people whether they've heard of machine learning, in the UK, only about 9% of people say yes. Oh, wow. If you then give them a list of applications of machine learning, mm. that you know the sorts of things, recommender systems on their phones or voice recognition on their phones, applications in health and so on, many of those applications they've heard of specifically, but they don't associate them with the term machine learning. Right. So about three quarters of people knew about systems that could understand human voices and answer questions. Similar numbers had heard of driverless cars. So they tend to know about specific applications, many of which they interact with in their everyday life. Through the dialogues, as we talk through the ideas behind machine learning, this, what machine learners were trying to do to get computers to learn from data, certainly their views evolved. And there was, of course, as you'd expect, a diversity of views from concern about machines and could they ever be as good as humans? And, and in some cases, surprise or disbelief that mm. machine learning techniques could do the things that actually in the field we know very well that they can do yeah. to, to high standards currently. And another interesting finding was that people's views on machine learning and concerns about them tended to be application-specific and context-specific. Mm. They didn't think of machine learning per se as a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. For example, many of the participants in the dialogue exercises were very positive about machine learning helping in healthcare, mm. whereas they may have been more concerned about driverless cars mm -hmm. or, or machine learning used in battle and warfare situations. Mm. So it wasn't a, it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's how is it used? How will it impact on my life? What's the capacity to do good? And how do I weigh that against the capacity to do harm? So it's really the incremental tools that people are interested in, uh, the individual tools, as opposed to the sort of larger question of the research or philosophical questions being asked. Absolutely. They want to think in the context of healthcare about how it may help people they know and love get better treatment, get cured more quickly or more easily, or cured in ways where they may not have been previously, or how's a driverless car going to impact on them in their street or their kids or their right. pets and so right. on. So how do you hope that the research community, the people involved in actually developing those tools or asking the larger questions, will be able to take this information now and use it? I think that this is incredibly important because it's the first time really the community that's doing this work is actually hearing from the outside about what the opinion is about what they're doing as opposed to the anecdotal sort of articles that we're all reading. Let me answer that on two different levels. The first is I think, and we've tried hard as part of the Royal Society project, but I think all of us in the field have an opportunity and I think a duty to really engage in communicating. We're the people who can demystify ideas, we're the people who can explain what a particular machine learning algorithm is trying to do, what it can do, and I think really importantly for the public, the kinds of things it will never do. Mm. And helping communicate that is really important. So I think all of us in the field, and there are many brilliant examples of this, not least your podcast, but all of us in the field should work really hard, I think, on communicating even more than we're doing now. So that's just helping the public learn about what's possible. And as I said, just as critically, what kinds of things they are probably afraid of, which those of us in the field would know are just not going to happen or not going to happen right, right. in the foreseeable future. So having the opportunity for that dialogue is important. And then from a more technical point of view, and it's another one of the things that the working group has put effort into, having got a sense from the public about the sorts of things that they're concerned about, it's prompted us to think, what are the areas of machine learning research which could directly tackle some of these? Mm -hmm. So, for example, many members of the public worry about the idea of a machine learning algorithm, which is effectively a black box mm -hmm. that makes an important decision for them or another person, for example, in denying credit or denying a mortgage application. And they really don't like the idea that you can't then ask a question, well, why? Why didn't I get right, my mortgage? Right. And the answer, we've got a really good and a really efficient algorithm that we've trained on huge amounts of data, and it's very efficient and gets things right most of the time. And it said no. That answer doesn't wear it with people. 
they want to know, oh, it's because of this. Mm -hmm. So one area that I think is a really interesting research challenge in the field, and one of the things we'll highlight in the report, is machine learning methods which are more transparent, mm. uh, either by insisting that the original algorithms are more transparent, or if the original algorithms are black box, can you develop another machine learning mm. algorithm which somehow or other tries to explain the thinking? The public, as I think is the field, are rightly concerned about issues to do with fairness and bias. How can we avoid developing algorithms which are implicitly or explicitly biased, or which inherit biases from the data that they're trained on, much of which will come from unconscious biases right. that we all have as people. And again, I think they're interesting areas of research to look at, you know, kind of provably unbiased. You can show that the result of the algorithm is, for example, uncorrelated with the answer to a particular question about race or something. Mm -hmm. It's not enough just to say, well, the algorithm can't use that particular field because there are so many other things that are good surrogates for it and will predict it. But again, I think there are sophisticated and pretty interesting research questions there. Mm -hmm. And they're just a number of examples where the community doing research on things that will help public in terms of their concerns would, would be valuable. Mm -hmm. So do you think there's any room for the public also to try to consume this report to, to be able to be a little self-reflective on how they understand the field? Or is this mainly aimed at the people who are doing the research? I think the report aims to address and talk to a number of different stakeholders. One of them is the public. So mm -hmm. we'd hope through the report to make the public more aware of what is and, as I said, importantly, isn't possible mm -hmm. in the next five or 10 years with machine learning. Um, stakeholders we'd aim at. One of them is the research community and in machine learning, some of that's in the academic world and some of it's in commercial sectors. We did quite a little bit of work with um, specific sectors of industry, having roundtables of consumer-facing industries, the legal industry, and so on. And in each case, trying to get, manufacturing was another example, trying to get their take on how much they're using machine learning, what mm -hmm. the barriers in a particular area are. And there are quite different levels of uptake in different commercial sectors of machine learning tools. Mm. So another audience we'd want to reach with the report are those specific groups, both to learn about good practice from other areas and where there are impediments, how they can be dealt with. Another important stakeholder is the government for a number of different reasons. One of them is the potential for use of data held by government and government agencies. Mm. Uh, in the UK, for example, we have the National Health Service, so a single-payer healthcare system, there's huge potential value in the data in that system that could be used by machine learning and other approaches to improve healthcare. It's an issue the UK governments of all political persuasions have been appropriately aware of and have been trying to facilitate. So governments have an important role in the way in which they can think about public data mm -hmm. and try and, as a government and in dialogues with the public, trade off the very legitimate concerns about privacy with the potential benefit of making that data available to algorithms and researchers who can learn from it. Governments also have a role potentially in regulation. So we've looked a little bit about some of the ethical problems, again, that arise from a machine learning point of view, and they pose, I think, real challenges, both from the algorithm point of view and from the data points of view, for governments to think about how they sh should maybe or shouldn't regulate them, should they regulate them in one way or should they be sector-specific approaches and so on. So hmm. that's another important audience for the report. Hmm. Fantastic. And what other work are you hoping to do in the working group over the next year that may add to the report or explore different areas of it? So when the report's launched, there'll be the report itself, of course, and we'll also have a report which summarizes in some detail the work we did on dialogues with the public. So mm -hmm. we'll make that mm. available as well. And then moving forward in the period after the report is launched, we'll want to still be very active in terms of public events, mm -hmm. both to make them aware of the report and to keep the ongoing possibility of understanding machine learning better, demystifying it to the extent that we can and getting them a sense of different applications. 
And then we'd hope to be in dialogues with government policymakers, with funders in the UK and research councils, but with the funders of academic and potentially commercial research, again, to get them to think about particular areas where if they were to help with a funding call or something, they could be facilitating research in some of the directions that we've explored in the report. So I think that one of the most important and interesting and sort of highly anticipated areas of expansion in machine learning is really around the area of regulation. It's sort of the Wild West right now. There's not a lot of concrete thought about it. How do you think we're going to see that develop in the next five or 10 years? It's a really good question. And I think there are related but maybe somewhat different questions on the one hand in terms of data Mm. and the other hand in terms of algorithms that use the data. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a lot of thought around the world and different systems in different places around regulating data, data privacy and so on. I think many people would characterize the existing regulatory regime and I think fairly characterize the existing regulatory regime as something which was developed for an age that's very different from ours, for Mm -hmm. an age in which data on individuals consisted of them filling in questionnaires, not data on a scale that that arises in so many different ways as we interact with the internet, in effect. So I think there are really big issues around data and privacy and how we trade off people's right to privacy with potential value for them as individuals and for society collectively from using the data. And actually, there's quite a lot of evidence, at least in the on the medical side, that particularly people who are sick in hospitals are quite positive about the idea of their mm. data being used to help other people who are sick. So it's a matter of regulators and policymakers finding ways that the public are comfortable mm. that allow some of the benefits from that. And then separately from regulating and thinking hard about data and privacy issues, again, in different sectors, there are issues around machine learning algorithms. Mm -hmm. And my own sense is it's hard to imagine that in a way that isn't sector specific. Mm -hmm. So in safety critical sectors, planes, trains, healthcare, and so on, there's a long standing culture and regulatory framework, which is about making sure that things don't happen until all the right tests have been undertaken, randomized clinical trials, for example, being the gold standard for changing medical practice. Those things will be great and will be natural for, I think, handling, you know, for example, a new machine learning algorithm that thinks it can make better choices about which medical intervention mm-hmm. a patient should have. If the evidence was compelling enough, you could then potentially do a randomized clinical trial of that. And that in those safety conscious areas, there's already, I think, a decent framework around regulation into which some machine learning or many machine learning applications would fit. In other things, you recommend the systems or translation and so on, it's a much less currently regulated environment anyway. And I don't think it's an easy thing to think mm-hmm. what should suddenly be done or what, what are the two things that will make this straightforward. Right. It's, it's not straightforward. Whether the things happening in those environments are machine learning based or not. Professor Peter Donnelly. This conversation was really interesting because it just really highlighted the fact that we need to really bring these ideas that seem really technical but are actually pretty accessible so long as you understand the foundational concepts. We really need to bring them into the public conversation more. I mean, Peter's great at straddling that divide. You know, he was something like the youngest professor in, full professor, I should say, for our American listeners in Britain when he was appointed. He's extremely technical, highly respected. Fellow of the Royal Society. Yeah, no, extraordinary catch for an interview. But also he's so down to earth. Really fantastic to have him on. And I was on the working group he chaired and he was a fantastic chair of that working group. I really enjoyed getting to spend that time with him. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what other work the Royal Society does around this question. I think the public understanding is really crucial and I think it's going to have a large impact on deployment, deployment of these technologies and these tools. 
And also, the, the thing that really interested me was its effect, on, and we also looked at the equivalent US reports, their effect on policy, government policy, mm-hmm. how resources are deployed. Before participating in that, I wasn't fully aware. And I think we're very lucky in the UK to have the Royal Society. The United States has NSF and equivalent institutions. Countries that don't have those bodies, that's something that wasn't apparent to me before going through this. If you don't have access to that level of expertise and the capability to convene it and channel it, because if you just tell scientists to do something, they'll just do whatever. But the the (laughs) Royal Society and and I think the National Science Foundation and these other National Academy of Sciences, probably the NSF as well, in the US, I'm less familiar with the scene there, but they provide this convening role that channels that expertise, which is so important in ensuring that government gets the right form of input. Yeah, really fantastic to see the work that they've done. Really excited to see more of it. So that's it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. <laughs>